Amen. Good morning. All right. This morning, um, we are going to be in the book of Revelation. So if you have a Bible, you could turn there with me. We are going to be in Revelation uh, chapter 6. As you're turning there this morning, um, I just wanted to encourage you, um, as, we, as we head into summer, to make it an intentional uh, summer, really, of, of growing in your own walk with the Lord. Whether you're going to be a part of that rooted group or, or not, um, we're looking forward to that. But I, I think that, you know, with every season, every change, it reminds us that God is always at work. So when we open up the book of Revelation, one of the things that it encourages me is that God is always in control. Um, I don't know if you have been watching news lately or if you've just been following. And you know what? This could be any week. It could be any week where you say, have you heard the news? And usually when you say, have you heard the news, there's tragedy. There's, um, there's things that are happening in our world, things that seem spiraling out of control. And this morning, we're going to be reminded that Jesus is in absolutely uh, he's in absolute control over things that are going on. So this morning, um, just kind of as a, a backdrop to Revelation, I wanted to remind us that there are different views of how we see the book of Revelation. There are some that believe that most of the prophecies in Revelation were fulfilled during the time of the Roman Empire. It's called, called the Preterist view. And to a large degree, there's different, um, there's different types of Preterism. Um, some people believe that all of those things were looking back at history. So those things in Revelation, they're looking back mostly until you get to Revelation 19. There are other preterists that believe that um, Revelation was written very early before the destruction of the temple. There's some godly people that believe those things as well and great scholars. There are uh, historicists that look at the book of Revelation as history. And so they, they see the book of Revelation not only as history past, but events that happen in history, now we're kind of looking back. And then you have those that, that kind of look at the book of Revelation and they see it as all spiritual or symbolic or idealist. Most of the prophecies kind of uh, portray like a cosmic spiritual conflict that's going on in this world. And then the futurist view is that most of the prophecies, especially beyond Revelation 3, are yet to be fulfilled, which I believe to be the most... Um, consistent with the rest of scripture the reason is because when you look at scripture remember that the book of revelation is is taken from so much of the rest of the bible the best commentary of the book of revelation is the rest of the bible so when you read the book of daniel and you're reading books like ezekiel and and um we're, we're going to look at some of the prophecies here that even jesus foretold i think there's a lot of it that is futurist and because of that we're going to look at Revelation 6 in a particular way, but I also wanted to share that there are some strengths that you could draw from each one of those. There are a lot of symbolic things that happen in the book of Revelation, words that have imagery that are, are meant to be timeless. There are, are things that have a, a near point of reference and a far point of reference. So maybe in that first century, something happened that looks similar to that, but it's also pointing towards things that are to come. So... The big picture, I, I kind of want to focus on those things. And I'm going to begin by, by kind of sharing a story. When I looked at Revelation 6, the title of the message is God's Loving Warning. And it, it brings me back to an awkward conversation that I had with my daughter when she first started to drive. Uh, she first started to drive, I wanted to kind of um, 
it's a scary thing, right? When your kids start driving and they're kind of on their own and now they're mobile. I mean, if you have a toddler, it's scary because now they're walking and like, oh no, I can't just put them down and now they're mobile. Well, then when they get a license, now they can go anywhere. So my daughter uh, had just learned to drive. So I was telling her, uh, you know, I try not to freak her out too much about the dangers of driving. And, and one night we went to Walmart, um, a super Walmart that was in Gilroy. It's a 24-hour store. We were parking there. Uh, you know, we parked in the parking lot. We had to get something. I don't remember what it was. And it was after like, like 11 o'clock at night. Maybe, you know, it was really late. And, and we got to the parking lot and just all these people walking around the parking lot. And so all of a sudden it flashed before my eyes. My, my daughter might drive to someplace like this by herself and, uh, you know, not, you know, be aware of what's around her. So I go on to tell her about, um, you know, this serial killer and like how he would stalk people and, and the way that he would ask for help. And it was, I had just seen that the week before and I was just telling her like, you got to be really careful because he, he had a cast on his arm and, and he was carrying groceries and he was saying, hey, can, can you help me? And so I was telling her that because, why? Because I love her. Thank you. I, I love her. All right. I want to make sure she's safe. I didn't realize that that was going to cause her, you know, emotional and psychological trauma for the rest of her life. And now she's not going to go ever park in a parking lot like that. And, and um, but maybe that's a good thing. Now, me being a, a dad that is fallen, you know, I'm not perfect in my warnings and in, in the way that I would paint a picture of things. But God in his perfection, I believe, gives us a glimpse of things to come. So when you read in the book of Daniel and Revelation and in the Gospels, you see uh, Matthew chapter 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, uh, they, they all start to dovetail together and you're going to see similar language um, covering similar events that Jesus wants us to know these things are to come. And again, I believe it's not to freak us out. Number one, it's to give us a loving warning. He tells us ahead of time that these things are going to happen. But I also believe, number two, that he wants to give us a blessed hope. The church that Jesus wrote to, that he spoke to in the book of Revelation, and the church throughout history and into the future, has always come under persecution. And the church today is under intense persecution. And it's absolutely important that when we think about that, it's not just American church. We don't just think of the persecution that we get because, I mean, what persecution do you get? Has anyone ever beaten you up? All right, maybe, maybe there's a couple of you that that's happened, but maybe one or two. Our persecution is like, man, he thinks I'm weird. You know, he's, he's making fun of me. I'm so persecuted. You know, some, now, it could be employment. There could be a loss of promotion, maybe a social kind of outcast type of thing that happens. But Jesus is addressing churches that in the history of, of Christ coming his first time until he comes again, that the church has always been under intense persecution. There are, and we'll get into this a little bit later, many people today that read the book of Revelation for the hope that is given that Jesus is still in control, that he's not um, out of control and the world is just spiraling and that Jesus is going to come back. And that's the blessed hope that we have. It reminds us that, that in the end, everything is going to go according to his plan and no one can thwart the plan of Jesus. And so in Revelation chapter six, what we are going to see 
is that um, in chapters 4 and 5, we had a vision of the throne. You remember that? It was what it looks like in heaven, all of the worship that is happening in heaven. There was this glimpse of, of the 24 elders casting their crowns at Jesus' feet. You have these four living creatures. Uh, you have people calling out, holy, holy, holy. And, and all of the things that, that pertain to the throne of God, Jesus is in control. And, and God is on the throne. And then it says that John saw um, next to him, you know, one standing as a lamb who had been slain. And I believe he has a glimpse of Jesus himself. Do you remember that there was a scroll? It says the one that sat on the throne had a scroll in his right hand. And the one that was standing next to him, um, you know, everyone was weeping. Who's, who's worthy to open the scroll? And uh, the one standing next to him, who's Jesus, takes the scroll from him. And there were seven seals along the scroll. Uh, a seal was a, a wax uh, like a dripping of wax that would cover up the scroll. Seven scrolls in Roman history would be a will, uh, like a last will and testament. So this is God's plan, kind of his, his will to be revealed of things that are, go- are to come. And now what's going to happen in Revelation chapter 6 is that Jesus is going to start opening the scroll and start ripping off these seals one at a time. The scroll can't be opened until all of the seals are, are taken off. Now, when you read the book of Revelation, there are some parts of Revelation that are not necessarily chronological. So just to know that, that it, it's almost in the Hebrew mindset, they, they would tell a story and then they would expound on that story and tell it again and expound on that story and tell it again. So what you're going to see is these uh, seals are ripped off, but then you're going to see later on in the book of Revelation, there's a further explanation of some of these parts of these seals. So this morning, dig in with me to Revelation chapter 6, and uh, it, we're going to just start off with what is known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, if you ever look at graphics for the book of Revelation, you ever look up because I, I, I'm a graphic, you know, I try to picture things in my mind. So I'm looking at this. So I type in Revelation, you know, chapter 6, imagery. It's crazy. The things that, that people see. But yet John saw something that is even beyond probably what those paintings depict. And he's trying in human language to explain to us what he sees. And the first thing is this seal that is open. It says in verse 1, now I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked and behold a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. Jesus is the lamb of God. Remember last week we talked about um, John seeing the lamb as though he was slain and you try to picture what this lamb was like. Um, Eric came up to me afterwards and he said, well, if the lamb took the scroll, then, then he probably, saw, John probably saw the lamb as Jesus, as, as a man, as though he had been slain. Because have you ever seen a sheep grab a scroll, like with his little hoof, you know, and, and like try to open the scroll? He's like, you can't do it. So, so here's Jesus opening the scroll. One of the four living creatures says, come and see. And so he sees this. And when the scroll is open, there's a white horse. And then there was one who sat on the horse that had a bow and a crown was given to him. Now, again, 
because there are so many different interpretations of Revelation, not going to be really dogmatic about this, but I, I think that, that when I look at um, the, the rest of Scripture, I, I really believe that this isn't Jesus that is riding on this white horse. Because later on in the second coming, the glorious appearing, he will come riding on, on this white horse, and, and so will we. And we'll, we're going to get into that in a moment. But as this rider comes, Jesus was the one that opened the seal. Okay, he's the lamb as though he had been slain. So this rider comes riding on a, a white horse, and it says there was a crown that was given to him. Now, a horse was a symbol of war, especially in the Old Testament. But Jesus opens this seal, and what happens is when this rider comes, the things that happen are different than when Jesus comes later on in the book of Revelation. So there's a different result with this rider coming on this white horse. The other thing is that um, in Revelation 19, let me read this to you. It says, when I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war and his eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. So when I look at Revelation chapter 6, I see this writer as kind of being an imitation of Jesus coming later. The Antichrist, when you read about the spirit of Antichrist throughout scripture, is a, a deceiving spirit. One that would deceive people into thinking that he is uh, the Messiah. Remember this, that when we think of our Messiah, when we think of Christ, we know that he's the son of God. And as the son of God, we know that he is deity. We know that he is all powerful. He's all knowing. But in the Jewish mindset, the Messiah is going to be a man that is going to come and bring peace. And so when we think about this, I, I look at this writer that comes in and um, it says that there was a crown that was given to him. Almost as if, to me, to signify that it wasn't something that was taken, but it was something that people just kind of gave him. You know, when it comes to um, the Bible speaking of peace, there are all kinds of different false peace that happen in our world. There are, there's a false peace that the Antichrist will kind of bring onto the world. And, and sometimes in the name of peace, people are willing to compromise all truth. Okay? Jesus is called the Prince of what? The Prince of Peace. So he comes to bring peace. But when this rider comes, you're going to see that this rider is going to take peace. Okay, the peace is going to be gone. And, and for a while, maybe it's going to seem as though, hey, everything is going to be okay. It seems like this leader has all of these answers and he's able to bring different world powers and different countries and nations together and so that there's, there's not as much conflict and this crown uh, will be given to him. Different than when Jesus is mentioned having a diadem, which is a kingly crown. This is like a, a victor's crown. Now, after these things, um, interesting theory that, that I, I kind of think of when it comes to this Antichrist. You know, when you read the other um, letters that John wrote, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then you read other places in, in Paul's letters, there's a spirit of Antichrist that comes. But then there is one that we know as the Antichrist, so to speak. 
the Antichrist, the one that will come to deceive many, will actually be possessed by not a demon, but Satan himself. And so there's going to be this incredible power that somehow in the midst of his, his peace that he's going to bring, in the name of peace, eventually he's going to say, anyone that is against me has to be taken care of. They have to be taken out of the way. They have to be dealt with. And sometimes we could see that in the name of, of peace that, that this person is going to come in and, and really cause havoc over all of the world. Jesus said it this way in Mark chapter 13, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. So Jesus, when he had, had come, there was uh, an acknowledgement that only the father knew that day or that hour. He said, take heed, watch and pray for you do not know when the time is. It's like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants to to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming in the evening, at midnight, at the crowning of the rooster or in the morning, lest suddenly he would come and find you sleeping. And uh, what I say to you all is watch. So what are we watching for? We're not watching for the Antichrist. We're watching for Jesus Christ. Okay. Jesus said, look up for your redemption draweth nigh. But because Satan is not, he's not the equal opposite of God. Okay. God is all powerful. Satan is not all powerful. God is all knowing. Satan is not all knowing. So Satan kind of reads clues, but he doesn't know everything that is a part of God's plan. And I personally believe that Satan is always ready to possess someone that in a sense is being prepared as that person that is going to be this false Messiah should Jesus come back for his church. And so there's always this this readiness. And so all throughout history, you know, when Adolf Hitler in World War II was in power, there were so many people around the world that believed that is the Antichrist. When Caesar Nero was in power, there are many people that believe that that is the Antichrist or a type of Antichrist. And so I think that there's always going to be those types, but yet when the Antichrist comes, there's going to be this sense of false peace. Let me read this to you out of 2 Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says, Now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and deceitful wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. So this is Paul writing to the Thessalonians, explaining to them that don't worry about it because that's not going to happen until the one that restrains is taken out of the way. And I believe that that one that restrains is the Holy Spirit within the church. Um, When in the 1990s, Deanna and I had just gotten married. And um, if you remember the, the riots in Los Angeles, if you were alive at the time or if you remember the news, it was a, a scary thing. Deanna was working for a CPA firm. She was in downtown Los Angeles on that day. We had no cell phones. 
and I'm watching the news, and the city is on fire. And what happened, I, I called her firm, and they said, well, we called her, you know, we told her to get out of there. And so, you know, I, I'm afraid that she might exit the freeway or, you know, what might happen. I'm just kind of looking at this whole scene. But what you saw in Los Angeles during that time was lawlessness. The police were absolutely overrun to the point when they, they could not even stop all of the riots that were happening. And when you think of our law enforcement, anyone that's in law enforcement, you know our laws, even in the United States, as a lawful country that we are, our laws are written for people that will obey the law, right? If everyone rebelled against law and there was lawlessness, there's no way that law enforcement would be able to restrain all of the evil and the perpetration of, of destruction that would happen at any given moment. Now, I just want you to imagine if the Holy Spirit's presence in the church would be gone. And what would this world look like? You might think of, um, you, you see what happens in other countries when there's um, just a village that is kind of overtaken and then there's civil war. You look at Rwanda and the genocide that happened there. Just unrestrained evil. Unrestrained because the government is not strong enough to hold that back. Now imagine if the, the government itself is saying, now we are the ones, a leadership saying, hey, we're the ones that have to go out and take care of anyone that would come up against us. So when, when I consider what this is like, um, when that first seal is broken, just incredible destruction. I believe that that first seal is um, the, the unveiling in the sense of the Antichrist coming to, to cause havoc on the world. And then you look at the, the second seal, in verses 3 and 4, it says, When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. Again, that the peace that the Antichrist brings will be a false peace, and it will not last. Uh, we, we see that, Later on in the book of Revelation, the Antichrist is called the red dragon or the red beast. This red horse that comes in brings war, absolute destruction. And, and when it comes to war, our world is always at war. Do you remember that World War I was called the war to end all wars? That was the name of world, the war to end all wars. And yet at, at any given moment, there are wars and battles that are happening all the time, but this is going to be um, a worldwide type of thing that happens, and it um, the the red horse represents uh, war that will happen, and then that third seal in verses five and six, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, "Come and see." So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, "A quart of wheat for a denarius." three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. Now, when we see famine in the Bible, like in Lamentations and in, the, in Jeremiah, we see um, it symbolized by this color black in Jeremiah 14 and in Lamentations chapter five. When you begin weighing bread, food is very scarce. It says a quart of wheat for a denarius. Um, this is... Uh, at the time that this is written, this is 12 times the amount of 
a person's daily wages that would be given just in order to eat. It's like, imagine if you think about Russia after the Soviet Union fell and you watch the news, there were bread lines all throughout Moscow. There were people that were looking just for food. When you look at the United States during the Great Depression and you read about that, how, how there were people starving and working just so that they could bring home some soup for their family to, to eat. So with war comes this incredible famine. And in this famine, um, it says, do not harm the oil and the wine. So the food chain is affected. You can't live on oil and wine. So the oil and wine is there. And, and oil and wine would be for the wealthy. Okay, the wealthy people would would own that but even the wealthy people couldn't live on oil and wine so the whole world is affected by this famine that takes place there's a plunge into this scarcity and even the the wealthy there don't really have much to eat and then we see the next seal we go to the fourth seal in verses seven and eight it says when he opened the fourth seal i heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying come and see So I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death. And Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger and with death, and by the beasts of the earth. So after war, after famine, death and Hades followed. Death claims the physical body, while Hades claims the soul. And so this death would come as a result of the sword, as a result of hunger, as a result of disease, as, as beasts, it said. And, and, and it says that a fourth of the world would pass away. In any cataclysmic disaster that we've seen, any catastrophe, when we, we think about how many people died in Indonesia during the, the tsunami that hit Indonesia. I mean, devastation. Um, think about Japan during the last tsunami. And if you watch news, it, I mean... There's something about us that, that when we watch that disaster and we, we see it, we, there's movies about that. And we, we think about, you know, what is the worst that could possibly happen? So a million people dying, is that the worst that could happen? Two million people? Think about the United States. How many people are we? About 360 million people? Is, is that right? About 360 million? 540 million? I don't know. A lot of millions. But we're, we're not even half a billion Okay, but imagine a fourth of the world's population. This is not something that happened in the first century. This is not something that, that is talking about history as the book of Revelation is written. And you could put this matching something that has happened in the Holocaust or, or something that has happened in a, a genocide around the world. No, this is a death that is, it is like nothing that our world has ever experienced. And in this death and disaster, it says there's death and there's, there's Hades. And so that's where the souls of the dead are brought to. And, and then the next thing that happens, this fifth seal, if you read with me in verses 9 and 10, it says, Then he opened the fifth seal, and I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they, they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long? So consider this fifth seal. Okay, the seal is opened up and there's this this vision that John gets. 
And when this fifth seal is opened, under the altar are the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. I, I imagine Auschwitz victims that are there. I, I imagine Nigerian Christians who have been killed by Boko Haram. I, I imagine Christians in Syria that had been beheaded by ISIS. And from the history of the world, I see martyrs that are there that were witnesses because of the truth of God and following Christ. They're asking this question, how long, O Lord? I don't know if you asked that question, but I think that there are times that I ask God, how long? How long will these things just keep going like this? How long will it, these people get away with it? How long will evil just go unrestrained? And, and this question of how long, maybe you, you think about it very personally because you look at injustice even in your own life. Maybe someone that has harmed you or a family member for some reason is not suffering any consequences that you can see right now. And you ask yourself, how long? And I know situations like that, of people that, that have been just severely hurt, um, abused, um, taken advantage of, and it seems like the perpetrator of that just seems to go about life, like nothing is touching them and everything is okay. Now, when Jesus died on the cross, what did he pray? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When Stephen was stoned to death and he was martyred, he prayed, Father, forgive them. So there's a forgiveness on this side of, of heaven, on this side of life. But after crossing over and being in heaven, those that are there understand God's plan that eventually there has to be justice. And see, here's an aspect of God that, that I hope and I pray that we get a hold of this morning, and it's the wrath of God. The wrath of the Lamb is as much a part of God's character as his love and his grace and his mercy. You can't separate the two. You can't only have a God of wrath or only have a God of love. He's a God of love and a God of wrath. If God were not a God of wrath, then his love would be something that to me would seem fickle how could he just say everyone is is offered the same thing whether they rebel against me or not and the people that say well there is no such thing as hell and this is all symbolic are people that in their mind and in their logic would have to say that god treats the murderer the same as he treats the one that is murdered they're just the same and the same consequences and the same love given to all no, God's love is offered to all. His grace is offered to all. But what's the condition of that grace? It's receiving it in humility. It's repentance. It's change, repenting, turning away from sin. It's just not given to everyone regardless of whether they want it or not. And it's so amazing to me that when I talk to people that aren't even necessarily Christians or don't even necessarily read the Bible, that they portray God as a God of their own understanding and say, I can never believe and trust in a God of wrath. I could never trust in a God of judgment. And they say, my God is only a God of love. Okay, talk to that same person if someone in their family is brutally assaulted and a judge just says, I love you so much, go ahead and go free. And all of a sudden, that same person is now saying, God, where is the justice? See, there are aspects of God that we cannot separate in his character. 
And so when it comes to God being a, a God of justice, as this fifth seal is open, these martyrs are crying out, how long, O Lord, until justice comes, until, God, you're glorified, you're proven to be right, and we are proven that what we said was true. Now, I have this from 2014. I don't even have it from 2016, but, but at the time that I was doing some research on this in a different Bible study, men, women, and children were being beheaded by ISIS because they were Christians, and we were just hearing about what ISIS was doing, right? And now it's, it's pretty commonplace now. The YouTube videos that get posted that have to get taken down of beheadings and things that are going on all around our world. In 2014, maybe you remember this in Nigeria, more than 2,000 women um, had become widows because their husbands who loved Jesus were put to death. And now even in the last year that these girls and these children were kidnapped from a school and they were taken and we don't even hear about it on our news. You know what we hear about? We hear about this singer, or we hear about this athlete, or we hear about this actor, and we're not even hearing about what's happening around the world. But God sees all of those things that are happening. And those martyrs that are crying out, how long, O Lord, are asking Jesus, how long will this happen? One Somali Christian couple in 2014, they were uh, fleeing from persecution from their homeland, and they ended up in a refugee center in Kenya. When they were there, some radical Islamists uh, who, who found out that they were there took them out, even though they had uh, fled from Somali and were in Kenya for refuge. They were shot several times and they were killed, even though that they had come to another country saying, hey, would someone just take us in? Would someone protect us? And they were taken out of that and they were killed by those that were chasing them down. In 2014, at that time, 1,500 Christians were slaughtered in Syria because of the radical Islam that was taking place. And again, why do we have this refugee crisis? It's because they're leaving those places. So this is not just looking back at history. It's not only looking at now, but in the future. And all of the martyrs are crying out to the Lord, all of these witnesses for Christ, how long, O Lord? All over the world that Christians are persecuted. Then in verse 11, it says, then a white robe was given to each one of them. This white robe not only signifying purity, but, but a sign of royalty. And it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer. So notice rest. That they would rest a little while longer. Even though they are asking, how long, O Lord? And they're asking that question, they are resting. And I think there's something that speaks to us about when we see evil happen or bad things happen to us, and if we can't rest in God's judgment and in God's mercy and in God's grace and in God's forgiveness, it will eat us up from the inside. Very personal for some of you, I want to encourage you to rest in the Lord. And I know it's hard, and I know it just seems like, how did this happen to me? How was I betrayed by this person that I loved? How, how was this person able to, to steal all of my money and just kind of get away with it? How was this person that I gave to and I, and I love them, how did they just take my love and just trample it? And how does it seem like nothing's phasing them? And if you don't rest in the fact that God is in control, it will eat you up from the inside out. In the scene in heaven, Jesus tells those that are asking and they're crying out, how long, O Lord? He says that they should rest a little while longer. 
In other words, they are not fretting. They're just wondering. But he tells them to rest until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. There are many more that would be saved. Whether it would be in the tribulation period or before the tribulation period, there are many that are still going to come to a knowledge of Christ. And so in God's timing, God is waiting. Now, I want to read to you a scripture in Isaiah 55. It's verses 8 and 9. If you don't have that written down, you could write it down, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. If you don't have it underlined in your Bible, you could underline it if you want to. But I think that they are words to meditate on. God speaks and he says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. I may not understand God's timing. I don't. I don't understand sometimes why God allows people to seemingly get away with things right now. But remember this, that as I don't understand, God does understand. And so praying and waiting, um, as we pray and we wait, God, how long? For us that are living, it is not an excuse for us to do nothing. There's injustice all around us and there are oppressed all around us. And it's not for us. And this is sometimes what the futurists that which I am when I look at the book of Revelation, futurists are sometimes accused of saying, you just want to read the book of Revelation for this, this pie in the sky kind of dreaming and just let the world go to hell and just watch it happen and just sit by because you're going to heaven and that's all that you care about. That is not what Jesus is telling us. Because when we look at the Bible, we, we see this. Micah chapter 6 verse 8 says this. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? What does God require of us? To do justice, to love mercy or kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. God has not called us just to have the hope of heaven, which that is, that, that's, if I don't have the hope of heaven, then I'm hopeless. But that hope of heaven should motivate me to do justice and not in a, a vigilante type of way, but to be absolutely involved in helping those that are oppressed. We, we have, you know, Dana and Paula who do the Royal Family Kids Camp. And what they're doing is they do these camps for these foster kids. And you hear the stories of some of these foster children. And it's absolutely tragic, some of the things that they've been through at such a young age. But God has called us to do something about it. We could, we could look at, okay, there's human trafficking going over here. Here's homelessness over here because of, of whatever reason those people are homeless. There could be mental illness. There, there's oppressed. There's injustice. And God has not called us to sit idly by to wait for the end of days. He wants us to notice those things that our hearts would be broken by the same things that break God's heart. And do these things break God's heart? Absolutely. I, I, I think that we can't look at biblical prophecy without understanding that God is telling us these things, again, as a loving father who would warn us, and if we could do something about it, to do something about those things. When God spoke to his people in the book of Isaiah, they came to a worship service. 
They came to sing praises, to lift up their hands, to be excited about God, to worship him in in glory. And what did God say to them? He said, when you come to me in these festivals and these feasts, you make me sick. He said, because you raise your hands and your hands are covered with blood. And Jesus or God goes on to say to them, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. It's one of the most interesting times in the Bible where God calls for repentance. And he doesn't say, I'm going to wash you, which he does later on. But right here he says, you wash yourselves. You make your, yourselves clean. How? He says, remove the evil from your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Now, does that sound like God wants us to sit idly by while we wait for him to come back? Absolutely not. Jesus said it this way, and what you've done to these, the least of my brethren, you've done it unto me. And God wants us as a church He wants you as a Christian to be intimately involved as his hands and feet doing the things that pertain to the gospel, which is not only the message of salvation, but it's good works that we people would see those good works and glorify God. When Jesus talks about the city that is set on a hill, that city that is set on a hill is meant to bring glory to God. We're not to hide our light under a a basket, right? We're to be salt, Salt is a preservative. The restrainer, we're we're still here. The Holy Spirit is still here. The church is still here. We should be a part of restraining evil in this world. We should be a part of doing something about it, of sending money, of praying for the persecuted church, of looking in our own communities and saying, God, how can we make a difference where we live? How can I make a difference at my school? Maybe it's something as simple as, as someone that is ostracized even if it is their own sinful lifestyle that has ostracized them. Now, let me repeat that. Even if it is their own sinful lifestyle that has caused them their dire and bleak situation, Jesus calls us to reach out to them in love, whether they reject us or not. We, sometimes I hear Christians say, well, they made their own bed, now they have to lie in it. Now, I understand that everyone has to reap what they sow. And sometimes, as a loving family, tough love means that you allow someone to go their own way. You've tried, you've tried to rescue them, and at some point in time, you just have to let them go their own way and suffer some consequences in order to come to repentance. But hopefully, as they are suffering those consequences, there was someone else that comes into their lives that doesn't have that same connection, and they don't have to show the tough love the same way, and they could say, hey, your life is all messed up because of your actions, but you could repent, you could go back to your family, you could go back to God, there is a God that loves you, and here, let me give you some food, let me help you in your situation, let me reach out to you in love. That's what God's called us to do. And it absolutely drives me crazy when I hear Christians just look at, some people that are in the situations that they're in and say, well, that's what they got. What did Jesus do for you? Did he say, well, that's what you get? Or did Jesus come in the form of a man to come into our world and die for sinners and get to know us and spend time with people and reach out to people and die for their sins? Jesus came into their world, into our world, in order to show us the love of God. And it's not... Christ-like, it's not Christian if we just say, that's what they get and and I'm going to be over here and if you need help, you can come crawling back. 
for help. Again, separating that tough love at times, letting people go through the circumstances that they're going through. But God's called us to make a difference. So these martyrs that cry out, how long, O Lord? It's not only waiting for the end of days, but it means for you and I to say, God, what can I do about that? God, maybe you're sending me to those people. Maybe you're sending me not to change my occupation, but to change my allocation of some of the funds that I have in order to help these people or to help this certain ministry. Because that's how God is, and that's God's heart. Now, I want to end with this sixth seal, verses 12 through 14. It says, And I looked, and he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth of hair. The moon became um, like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken up by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. Now those who regard the events of the book of Revelation only as history have to over-spiritualize everything. I believe that the earthquake was an earthquake. The earthquake that he sees here is an earthquake. Uh, There are some godly commentators and scholars that say the earthquake is a shift in world powers. I don't, I mean, it could be, I don't don't see that. I would have to, as an English major, when I would go through literary interpretation, not biblical interpretation, just going over literature with my students, I would have to grade their essays. And grading an essay where someone would throw out some outlandish thing that has nothing to do with the overall text of the novel that we're reading, I would tell them that doesn't seem to fit the interpretation of what the rest of the text is saying. And so when I I see that, I, I think that this has to fit this, um, an earthquake is an earthquake and you have to over-spiritualize it to see it as otherwise. Yet, is there some symbolic language? Absolutely. For those of you that um, are, are good literature and English students, the words like or as are used in what type of uh, device? What is that called? It's called a simile. It's a comparison of two seemingly unlike things using like or as and just choosing some certain things to compare. If you say that Joe eats like a pig, you know, there's a lot of things. Well, Joe walks around on two feet. You know, he has opposable thumbs and a brain. You know, he could think about these things. But you're only comparing the thing that he does like a pig. It's his eating. So it's not saying that the moon is blood and all of a sudden dripping and it just, you know, it's, it becomes blood. But it's red like blood. There's a like. There's an as to it. And, and John is not using scientific terms. He's only describing what he saw, that the moon was like blood and the stars are falling like or as fig, a fig tree drops its late figs and the, the heavens are rolled up, the sky is rolled up like a scroll or as a scroll. And he's trying to explain these worldwide catastrophes that are going to take place. Again, these worldwide catastrophes are not something that you can look at it and say, well, this is something that is a common occurrence. Um, whenever the, the news comes about this meteor that is about to hit Earth, you know, and it's a scary thing. And there's, I remember years past saying, you know, on the news, in 2012, there's this meteor, and if it hits the Earth, we're going back into the Ice Age. And so it misses us by, you know, how many millions of miles, but according, or hundreds of thousands of miles, whatever it is. And and they say, but that was close. You know, that's a close call. 
Why haven't they hit yet? Just think God's, you know, God, God's, you know, God's keeping those things from happening. But there's a time when, when these meteors or these asteroids are just going to hit. For John, I think that he's just seen this. I think he's just seen things relating them to us. This earthquake and, and the, the sun being black as sackcloth of hair. You know, I can't even imagine what that looks like. But he's just using this descriptive imagery. And then in verses 15 and 17, the response of those on the earth. It says, and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, and the mighty men. So let me just pause with that. They, the kings of the earth, the commanders, the wealthy, the mighty, they are not um, free from the rest of the things that are happening on the world. Okay, they are going through the same things at this point in time. They're facing the same um, catastrophes that, that the rest of the world is facing. And then it says, and every slave and every free man. So this is rich and poor. This is even the slaves and the rich together. They hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Vance Havner said that at this point in time, the most expensive real estate on earth will be holes in mountains. Everyone trying to get away. And imagine, you know, the president of the United States or a king or a wealthy person or a commander shaking and and in the same place as a slave and someone extremely poor, and they're both saying, fall on us to the mountains, because they are trying to hide from what? The wrath of the Lamb. Now, even in this, this is not repentance. Even in this, this is not God forgive me, or God help me, or God save me. Do you remember when Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? They hid. Instead of going towards God, instead of asking God for forgiveness, instead of confession, there's a hiding from God. And sometimes we think, what will it take for repentance? What will it take for someone to finally say, okay, God, I, I, I surrender to you. But even at this point in time, they're fleeing from the face of him who sits on the throne. And they're trying to hide. And notice, from the wrath of what? The Lamb. Go back to Revelation chapter 4. If you did not um, listen to that message, you could listen online. It's really why I believe that the church is not there at this point in time. Because the, the Lamb of God, Jesus, took the wrath of God upon himself for us. You read the book of Romans as we went through Romans and we studied how many times it, it spoke over and over again of Jesus and that the gospel is that Jesus took his wrath upon himself so that we don't have to suffer the wrath of God. And that's why I believe that the church is taken out at this point in time and those that are still there are suffering the wrath of the lamb. And again, what a crazy image because it's the wrath not of a lion, it's the wrath of a lamb. And how, how rebellious and how evil do you have to be for the wrath of the lamb to come? For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? And as we close... I ask you this question, who's able to stand? Those of us that stand in the grace of God. 
those of us that understand that it's only by his blood that we are saved. Jesus came to make atonement for my sin and for your sin. We look at the unrighteous as we've looked at the book of Revelation and the persecution that happens. And it's easy to look at those people and say, well, I'm not that person. Hopefully you're not. But it does not mean that you and I are sinless. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Who is able to stand? It's only those that have bowed the knee. Who is able to stand? Only those that have humbled themselves to receive the grace and love and mercy of Christ. Only those who put our trust not in our own righteousness and what we've done, but in God's love and grace and mercy and what he has done. And you know what? I want to encourage you. The loving warning is given so that you could do something about it. Number one, for those of you that have never received God's love and grace and mercy, you're looking at this going, this is crazy. I'm encouraging you, don't be there. I don't want to be there. Don't be there. How? Open up your heart. Trust the Lord. Now, there are those that are post-tribulationists that say, hey, we're going to go through that. I believe that we will go through tribulation, but not the tribulation. But even if I am wrong, I will still stand because of God's grace and because of what Jesus has done for me. Now, I also want to encourage you that loving warning is given to us because while we are on this earth, we're to do some stuff, right? We're to speak the truth in love. We're to reach out to people. We're to show the love of Christ. And remember, what does God require of us? But to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. How is God working in your heart? How is God showing you brokenness in this world that you notice it because he wants you to do something about it? This morning, respond to that. This morning, respond to Jesus revealing to you his heart for the world. And whatever portion that is that you see, God, use me. I don't want to just see it. God, use me. Help me to do whatever I can. And then I trust you that you are still in control. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, there's a prayer that you are hearing right now, and that prayer is how long? How long, oh Lord? And God, while we're still here, we're, we're still living, we're still breathing. God, we woke up this morning, we still have a pulse and a heartbeat, which means that your plan for us personally is not done. So God, I first of all want to pray for anyone that has never opened up their heart to receive the love and grace and mercy that you give. God, that they would experience life in the, its fullness in what you would desire. And if that is you, would you just pray this prayer with me? Jesus, forgive me for my sin. Thank you for dying for me. And I pray for your forgiveness. And I ask you to fill me with your spirit. God, I put my trust in you. And I pray that you would help me to follow you all of my days. I ask you that you would help me to make a difference in this world. Because you love me, help me to love others. And then, Father, I also want to pray for those of us that have put our hope and faith and trust in you. That Jesus, when we read the book of Revelation, it would be blessed assurance for us. Lord, no matter who wins this election in our country, 
we realize that you're in control. Lord, no matter what happens in the catastrophes around this world, no matter what kind of persecution that happens, that God, we know that there are none of these things that take you by surprise. You are not up in heaven fretting and worrying and trying to figure things out. So Lord, our trust is in you. But yet, Jesus, I pray that we would not use that as an excuse for inactivity. So God, use us. And God, speak to us this morning about the brokenness of this world that you want us to be a part of bringing life and healing and peace. God, we pray that you would use us to rescue those that are oppressed, that you would use us, Lord, to sometimes move across the country to serve in a ministry specifically to do that, but maybe it's right here in our own community. Lord, maybe it's not a change of occupation, but an allocation of the funds that you've blessed us with. So God, help us this morning to to have hearts that reflect yours. And so God, we thank you that Revelation 6 comes after the scene of heaven. We thank you that it comes after the scene of the throne, that you're you're seated, God. And it, it comes after the worship scene. May we worship you in the here and now. So use us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.